If you have your Bibles this morning, turn to the book of Mark, chapter 5, verses 21 through 43. If not, there should be a pew Bible right in front of you, and you can find the text on page 1069. Follow along with me. Hear the word of the Lord. When Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. There was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for twelve years and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James, They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumai, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they immediately were overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. This is the word of the Lord. Kind and powerful. I think uh, two words that describe how a lot of people think about God. Uh, Kind, on the one hand, uh, a lot of of people would think, have kind of this picture of God as some old grandfather uh, up up in the sky. You even hear people a lot of times, maybe you've even said it yourself, the, the big man upstairs. And almost this picture of God as sitting in a rocking chair with a sweater vest and smelling like pipe tobacco while holding a pocket watch or something. This kind old grandfather figure. And then on the other hand, powerful. I think others think of God as some 
genie in the sky, some mighty, powerful force that can do incredible things. But kindness and love are often overshadowed by just brute force and sheer strength. Uh, neither of these, of course, are correct uh, in themselves. And, and I think in the passage today, we meet two people from drastically different ends of the social spectrum that demonstrate to us uh, more of a complete picture of who Christ is, who God is in his character, that he's loving and he's kind. But yes, he is all powerful and contains all might and strength. And so a city outcast and a city leader. In our text today, we see people from two opposite ends of the social spectrum. On the one hand, uh, the text this morning focuses on a, on a woman who's an outcast. She's been suffering from a, a hemorrhage for 12 years. A hemorrhage of blood that rendered her ceremonially unclean to be a part of uh, religious or social life as a Jew. She meant that she was... Uh, transmitting that uncleanness to anyone that she would come into contact with. So if she had been married, likely by now divorced from her husband after 12 years of uncleanness, ostracized from society, barred from worship in the synagogue and from Jewish life, then on the other hand, a leader, a prominent person in the society there as a Jew. Uh, many scholars believe he would be even the, the head of, of the synagogue, or at least one of the heads of the synagogue, uh, a president maybe of the board of elders that were responsible for worship in the synagogue and planning services and a man of incredible wealth and prestige. Um, but both, regardless of which end of the spectrum they represent, both equally in need as uh, his 12-year-old daughter lay dying. And so I think here we see two different representations, one rich, one poor, one accepted, one an outcast, one familial, and one with nobody, one left completely alone, but yet both beyond natural help. For 12 years, this girl and this woman had lived very different lives, and yet now they're bound together, their souls almost bound together by adversity as they would seek the, the help of Christ. And they would see in that the incredible love of God, that he is, yes, he is kind and he's merciful, but he does have all power. And so I think it's fitting this morning that we're in the second Sunday of Advent, and the, the Advent, the season, the, the second Sunday being the one for love, where we remember the love that God had for us and that he sent his only son. And here we see that son demonstrating that love to two, to two people from opposite ends of the social spectrum with very different views and thoughts about who God even is. I think you see that even in their, um, their interactions with Christ, maybe wondering about his care, or his love, his concern, and, uh, and then also how uh, powerful and mighty he truly is. Both of their expectations would be totally blown away on this day that they both meet and encounter Christ. And so this morning, three points or three scenes, I think, that the text sets for us as we walk through this text demonstrating to us how God brings faith into the lives of those he touches and how he causes it to grow. If you remember a few weeks back when we were talking through the parables where Jesus was teaching, we, we saw that, that it is God that provides kingdom growth. We plant seeds, he causes it to grow. Um, as in the parable, the man is sleeping in his house when God does this. Uh, this morning, I think we see an example of that in this text where Jesus has he meets two individuals he causes their faith to grow. So number one, the love of Jesus leads to care for the distressed. The love of Jesus leads to care for the distressed. Look at verses 21 through 24. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him. 
and he was beside the sea. And then one of the rulers, and then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet. Text starts out, and when they had crossed again, so from what we can tell, Jesus is back on the shores in Capernaum. If you remember, he left for a few days to escape the pressures of the crowd. The text tells us that they were literally about to crush him, or they were at least concerned that the crowds would crush him. They had, they had gotten so, uh, so large and, and demanding. And so Jesus gets away for a few days, and in the time that he's been gone, he calms a stormy sea by mere words. He delivers a demoniac stormy soul Again, by mere words, and now the crowd has stormed the shores of Capernaum to see what else Jesus might do as he's now returned, from best we can tell. And then in verse 22, we meet Jairus, the first individual in our text this morning that has an encounter with, with Christ. Now, Jairus, as we've already mentioned, is an important man in the community. He's a synagogue ruler, a leader in the community. The synagogue, again, was the, the center of social life, not just religious life, but it was the center of society for Jews. And this man wasn't a priest, but he was an, an elder. He was a layman in the synagogue that planned worship services that had a part in the leadership of the local synagogue. So he has status. He has prominence. He's an important guy. You can imagine the crowd as they're standing there, as Jesus has returned from the other side of the lake. They're standing there as this man, Jairus, runs up to Jesus, charging at Jesus. Remember that Jairus, or at least Jairus' kind, the synagogue leaders, those in charge of the synagogue, they weren't too friendly towards Jesus. I mean, you remember the last encounter that they've had with him. Jesus was an outsider. He was not accepted by these guys. He threatened their authority. And these miracles that he's performing uh, causes that, that a major threat to who they are and to their prominence in the community. And so they went as far as to even accuse Jesus of heresy, uh, a crime that was punishable by death. The last time we see these guys, they're wanting to kill Jesus. And now Jairus, one of their leaders, is charging towards Jesus. So you can imagine as the crowd's watching that day, they're wondering, are we, are we about to see an, uh, another exorcism here or a UFC cage match? I mean, what's about to go down as, as Jairus is running towards Christ? And then out of nowhere, he falls down on his knees and he's begging. He's bowing in humility before Christ. What would cause him to do that? Why would he do that as a leader of the synagogue, someone who was out to destroy Jesus only days ago? Now he's fallen on his feet before, or fallen on his, on his knees before him. Well, verse 23 tells us why. He implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. So we see why. The text gives us our answer. Jairus has a problem that he can't solve on his own. He is desperate. He's in a dire situation. His daughter is at home, and she's in the bed, and she's dying. And the word that Mark uses here in the Greek demonstrates to us that she's actually uh, at the end of her life. She is, she's at death's doorstep. And, uh, and, and death is imminent. It, it, is, it is close. And, and it's possible that Jairus has even been waiting for Jesus to return because he's the only hope that Jairus has. And now he's come back across the sea, and Jairus has this hope that Jesus will come and heal his daughter. We don't know what kind of disease or sickness that she may have. The text doesn't tell us that. doesn't tell us how long she's been sick. But we do know she's in the final stages. Death is near for her. And Jairus is so, is so like many of us in our coming to Christ. All right? I mean, we, we, it's no love for Christ that brings him to Christ. It's, it's not that he hoped he could serve Christ or do something for the Lord. He didn't want to honor Christ. It was simply that he needed his help. He was desperate. He knew nowhere else to turn. 
And in desperation, with some glimmer of hope that Jesus could fix this problem, he goes to Christ. Lean in for a moment and, and, and hear this. I think for us this morning, let me tell you, if you've run out of options, if you have nowhere else to turn this morning, then yes, Jesus is the right person for you. It's way better for us. It's, it's, it's so much better for us if we go to him first. And instead of trying everything else first, that we go to the one who is sovereignly in control of the whole universe, go to him first. But if you're here this morning and you feel like I've run out of options, I've tried everything, there's no remedy for this situation, these circumstances that I've found myself in, let me encourage you, come to Christ. Come to Christ, he can heal you, he can restore you. He can restore your your physical condition, he can restore your marriage, he can save your soul. He has that kind of authority, he is who you need. So like us uh, in, in Jairus' coming. Then notice in verse 23, he calls her my little daughter. My little daughter. And we actually learn, if, as we continue in the text, that she's not actually little anymore. She's actually 12 years old. And in that culture, in that day, this would have been marrying age. She was old enough to, to have a husband. And he's calling her my little daughter. Luke tells us that, he is, uh, that, that she is actually his only daughter in Luke's gospel. And so if you're a parent here this morning, you can completely feel the weight of Jerry's desperation. You can relate to Jerry's. He's literally begging for his daughter's life. And for him, she is still his little daughter. She'll always be his little daughter. And he's heard about Jesus' healing ministry. He may have even seen it with his own eyes. And now he's begging. He's falling on his knees before Christ, begging for his daughter's life. And here's the reality. He doesn't even care at this point if his boys back at the synagogue, if his buddies back at the synagogue, the other leaders at the synagogue are going to bust his chops about begging and whining and pleading to the enemy. It doesn't even matter anymore. He doesn't care in humility. He's begging Christ, come take care of my daughter. He throws himself upon the kindness of Christ. At the end of the day, though, he would learn of the power of Jesus in a way that he had never imagined possible. And the text says he went with him. Just as simple as that, Jesus turns and goes with him. You can imagine the anticipation, the excitement that, 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 that he has as Jesus is coming and that there's the possibility that his daughter may not die. But you can even ex- imagine the excitement from the crowds. Finally, we get some more action, right? That's what they've showed up for. They've heard about Jesus. They've seen him do other things. He left and went to the other side of the lake. Now he's come back. And now they get to see more miracle working action. They're they're there for the party. They're there to see what they can be entertained with. They're excited. And it says this. At the same time, you see Jairus' relief that Jesus is going to come with him. The excitement that Jairus must have that his daughter's going to be raised. But his excitement is short-lived. Verse 24b, a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. It's a simple statement, but it must have been excruciating for Jairus. You can imagine how quickly he's wanting to get back to his daughter. He knows that her time on this earth is short and that there's not a lot of time to play with. And now all these people are crowding around Jesus, slowing down the caravan, sort of like an ambulance in a traffic jam. They're in a dire situation. There's no ill will here. It's not like the crowd's trying purposefully to slow Jesus down so he can't go heal this girl. They just want to be there. They don't want to miss anything. They want to see this next miracle. They want to be a part of what Jesus is doing. And then to Jairus' horror, (laughs) to his great dismay, it gets even worse. Jesus stops and gets completely sidetracked. He gets completely distracted, which leads to our second point. The love of Jesus leads to a cure for the diseased. The love of Jesus leads to a cure for the disease. Look at verse 24 through 36. 
And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but grew far wor- or grew worse. And she had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I'll be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Introduce you to the second person in our narrative today, the meet Jesus. We see a a woman who wants Jesus to heal something and to do a miracle on this day to to heal someone, but she wants that someone to be herself, right? She's had this bleeding disorder for 12 years. The entire time that Jairus' daughter has been alive, this lady's been bleeding. And so you you can see perhaps maybe the connection that Mark is making for us. Again, when we see these sandwich stories where Mark starts a story, introduces a story, and then comes back to the first story, we call those sandwich stories. And this is perhaps one of the connections Mark is making. This lady's been sick for as long as Jairus' daughter's been alive. Again, we don't know her exact condition, but we know it left her hopeless. It left her in a dire situation. This type of bleeding would have been uh, something that would have made a a woman ceremonially unclean, unable to be a part of, of Jewish life, religious life, or social life, alienated her from her husband if she ever had one. Functionally, it would have made her an outcast. All of that's in addition to the physical pain that her body must have been in. Notice verse uh, 26. She was one who had suffered much under many physicians. And she had spent all that she had. You don't spend all that you have over something if it's, if it's not causing you some agony and some pain, some grief. But she was not better. She grew far worse. So in other words, she had not been simply suffering from the disease. She would also been suffering from the cures that all these doctors had been uh, giving her. And, and all the money that she had been charged for these cures, they were making it worse. She'd exhausted her finances. She'd tried all the medical and superstitious, the home remedies, the old wives' tales. All of those, nothing seemed to be working. She kept getting worse instead. It's interesting, the the Talmud, uh, which is uh, commentary on the rabbinic law. So Jewish law, um, the rabbinic law has some commentary written on it, the Talmud. Now Jews hold these books close and believe them. They trust them. In the Talmud, there are 11 cures for this specific type of illness. 11. 11 things that that the religious leaders said that she could have tried. Let me give you a a glimpse or a little example of what those could have been. Take three pints of Persian onions. Hey, go get some Persian onions. Boil them in wine and let her drink them and then say to her, arise from thy flux. So she boil these onions, drink it, let somebody say to you, arise from the flux. It may help you with your bleeding. That doesn't work. I'm going to quote, I'm going to, I'm going to read you this one verbatim because it's just that interesting. Set her in a place where two roads meet, so a fork in the road, and let her hold a cup of wine in her right hand and let someone come behind her and frighten her and say to her, arise from your flux. So just, just picture this, right? Like go to a fork in the road and you just stand there. And if you're standing there thinking this might be your cure, you can't know when they're coming or they wouldn't frighten you. So how long is she standing in the fork of the road holding a cup of wine so that she's not uh, expecting the people to come frighten her and they come up behind her, arise from that flux and try to scare her. And this is supposed to be a cure for her bleeding. If that doesn't work, let her carry a barley of corn that had been taken from the droppings of a white she-donkey. You can imagine the types of cures that she's tried, the desperation, the extent that she would go so that if anything was possible, that if anything would work, you can imagine the amount of bold onions this lady had drank. 
The amount of she-donkeys that she had followed behind in hopes of a cure. How many times she'd stood in that fork in the road and it hadn't helped yet. There was still one more thing she could try. This person, Jesus, she's heard a lot about. He seems to have power. And if she could just get close enough to touch his garment, she'd heard about his power. And so she, afraid to come right out and ask Jesus for mercy and for healing. You can imagine that's what's happening everywhere as Jesus travels anywhere. Jesus, will you heal me? I need healing. I need healing. So she just, if she can slip in and steal some of the power by touching his garment without him noticing, maybe that would work. That's incredibly taboo even in itself to touch a man, no less a rabbi like this. For a woman would have been incredibly um, taboo in that day. But you see the superstition at work even in her own thoughts. There's an element of faith here though. Yes, her theology was terrible, but her faith is evident. And in a split second, she was healed. That's what the text tells us. She received complete and instant healing. She knew in her body that her disease had been ridden from her body. Something that 12 years of remedies couldn't do. 12 years of all these uh, doctors and their medical instructions, nothing could fix. She felt instantly. You can imagine the joy that must have pulsed through her body in that moment when it was gone, when it happened and the cure took place. And just as she was probably ready to slip away, sneak away unnoticed and celebrate by herself, because that's probably all she knew. She was alone, abandoned, an outcast. Just as she's ready to slip away, verse 30. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And the disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Jesus stops the entourage. Jesus stops the folks that are traveling with him, the disciples, Jairus. He stops and he wants to know, he wants to find the person who's just touched him. And of course the disciples, you know, clueless again, have an answer, right? Uh, Jesus, if you haven't noticed, we're walking in a crowd of people. There are always people touching us. They're touching us right now, Jesus That's not what Jesus was talking about. Jesus knew that someone had reached out in faith and that someone had been been healed as a result of his power. He knew that this woman's uncleanness and her sickness was replaced by purity and health. That's love, friends. Jesus knew of this exchange. He knew the woman, and the woman had hoped to do it in secret, but it was absolutely noticed by Jesus. She had no idea that anyone, especially Jesus, would know what she did, but he did. And yes, her faith was uninformed. It was, it was presumptuous and superstitious even. But it was real faith. It was real Christ-honoring faith. And Christ honored this imperfect faith. When Christ calls her to fess up for what she had done, it was for her benefit. It was for Jairus' benefit that was watching all of this. It was for the crowd's benefit, for his disciples' benefit. It was for our benefit today that he calls this woman out. Calls her to fess up to what she had done. Why? Because not only did he have the power to heal, we see that's already taken place. He also was merciful and kind as well, and he wanted her to know his character. There's instruction for that, for us in that church family. Yes, he's all-powerful. He has all authority, even over diseases, but he wants us to know he's loving too. Think about how much of this applies to us, church family. Her uninformed faith. God still does the same today. 
beginning or or new faith is often misinformed and full of errors and, and confused. However, one doesn't have to have it all figured out. We don't have to have all the answers to possess a faith that pleases God. This is why young people can come to faith in Christ. This is why people can come to faith in Christ that haven't studied uh, all of the scriptures or haven't studied theology. God saves those who have virtually no understanding of the deep things, the extended things of the faith. The point is that faith that pleases God doesn't belong to the informed elite. Doesn't belong to those that have grown up in church and heard the stories since they were two years old. Not only was it uninformed faith, it was stumbling faith, selfish faith. She's not only ignorant of what to believe about Jesus, she's selfish in her belief as well. She wanted to be healed. She wanted health, but she didn't particularly care about the healer. She wanted to be made well, but she didn't care how she got well. She just believed that Jesus could do it. And this is often typical of us. We come to Jesus because we need something. We come to Jesus because we're broken. We have a problem and we don't know how to fix it. We're at the end of our rope and we don't know what to do. We're in trouble. And yet he reaches out and touches us and changes us and calls us to himself and transforms us. And so that we develop this deep love and desire for for him, not just the healing that he can provide. We develop this trust for him and not what he can do for us. So that in the future we love him and we don't even care if that thing gets fixed. That's the way Christ transforms our hearts. So it was an uninformed faith. It was a stumbling faith, a selfish faith. And yet it was one that Christ recognized and honored. Are you sensing the stirrings of faith this morning? Do you hear the word of God and and he's stirring in your heart this, this, this faith, this belief that you've never experienced before, but yet you feel, well, man, it's so minuscule. It's so tiny. I have so many questions. This is such an imperfect faith. I have more questions than I do answers. By God's grace, friend, exercise that faith. Believe in Jesus. It will not go unnoticed by the master. Trust Christ. Believe Christ. And watch him, watch him cause your faith to grow. And so this woman represents every one of us. This woman represents all of humanity. We're all ill. We're all sick with a disease called sin. And we've spent our lives, many of us, on different things, different remedies, different solutions to our deepest need and problem. And Christ comes to us from the cross and he says, come to me and I'll give you rest. Come to me and I'll forgive your sins. And we need not but to reach out and touch him in faith. Don't fear that he'll not respond. Don't fear that you're too ignorant or or too confused or you have too many questions. Don't fear that you're too selfish. Fear only one thing, that he will pass by and you will not have reached out in faith to touch him. Jairus is watching all of this. Jairus is watching all of this unfold and you can imagine torn by emotions. On the one hand, he's encouraged. On the one hand, his, his hopes are lifted. His faith is strengthened. The rumors of Jesus that he's heard or perhaps even seen earlier, they're true. He just healed this woman by mere touch of his garment. At the same time, on the other hand, you can imagine his anxiety during all of this. The disciples' frustration and irritation over all this. This woman with a chronic condition is getting the attention of Christ instead of the child with the acute condition. What do I mean there? Well, this woman has been sick for 12 years. She could have waited 30 more minutes, right? Jesus chooses to stop and talk with this woman who's just been healed instead of going to the little girl that's still dying. And it's really even worse than that. It's malpractice. If you think about it, if these two Individuals were patients in an ER, in an emergency room. Any doctor that treated the woman first and let the child die would be sued. 
This is ludicrous. This is crazy. Jesus, the great, maybe the great physician, but here he's acting like a, a confused and reckless doctor. He doesn't know who to treat first. He's wasting time, precious seconds. You can imagine Jairus and what he must have been thinking. What are you doing, Jesus? You said you would go with me. You'd left and you turned and we went, but now you're stopped and you're getting sidetracked. It's going to be too late, Jesus. You've got to hurry. You've got to hurry, Jesus, or she's going to die. And then you can imagine the disciples. Jesus, we finally have someone of prominence. We finally have a leader in the synagogue that wants our help. And you're tarrying. You're wasting time. Let's go. We've got to hurry. We've got to help him. This little girl needs you. But Jesus won't be hurried. Jesus won't be hurried. He's standing there. And as they're standing there, this woman has just been healed. You can imagine the emotions. The thing that Jairus feels, fears most in the world just happens. You see it in verse 35. And while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house someone who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? Friends, try to put yourself in Jairus' shoes. Can you imagine the agony of this news? In this terrible instant, this growing flame of Jairus' hope is snuffed out. His baby girl is dead. What he was so excited about, the fact that Jesus is here on the shore on this side of the lake and I've asked him and he's coming back to the house with me. The hope that I have of my daughter being healed is quickly crushed. And yet there's a flicker of hope, verse 36. But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. So with equal quickness, the hope is rekindled and it's elevated even. Don't miss what's happening in in this transaction, in these few words in this conversation. Jairus came to Jesus with an uninformed, wishful hope that Jesus would cure his daughter, would heal his daughter. And this belief is elevated when he sees what Jesus does for this woman with this bleeding disorder. He really can do it. He's going to come and do it for my daughter as well. But now Jesus is challenging Jairus to not only believe him for a healing, but to believe that he can do a resurrection. You see how in this moment, this is a radical call for Jairus, a radical development of Jairus' faith. Jairus, I know you came here. You wanted me to heal your daughter. I'm going to do something more. I'm going to raise her from the dead. Jesus says to Jairus, despite all appearances, I am not distracted. I am not disinterested in your need, but I work in my time. And not in other people's time. I work in my time. I will not be hurried. I won't be dictated to. Just believe and watch what I do. And I think there's some of us here today that need to, to need to hear that word. That Jesus works in his time and in his way. And it's always better than our timing. It's always better than our ways. And so whatever your circumstances are this morning that you're wishing, you've been praying, you wish that Jesus would just work in this situation. You're at the end of your rope. He works in his time and he won't be hurried. Trust him. Which leads to our third point, our third scene in the text. The love of Jesus leads to a resurrection from the dead. The love of Jesus leads to a resurrection from the dead. Look at verse 37 through the end of the chapter. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue. And Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. And he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. And Jesus selects Peter, James, and John. 
We refer to them often as the inner circle or the inner three. And what we see there is this is the first time that Jesus gathers this group, at least in Mark's gospel. It's not his last. We'll see it again, that he gathers these three men in particular. Jesus poured his life into 12 disciples, but these three he took and discipled and instructed and and made a part of things that the others weren't. He poured his life even more deeply into these three men. And so they come with him, and they go to Jairus' house, and there's a commotion there when they show up. They arrive, and there's a crowd that's already formed at the house, and it says uh, that there's a weeping and mourning and a, and a commotion that, that Mark uses the word there. The idea there is uh, that there, was, there were professional mourners that were hired, and they're hired to lend support to a family during a funeral. So the way it worked was they, they would come, and they would hire these individuals to be mourners, and it created an environment with weeping and wailing so that the family, the actual mourners, could mourn in the way that was most helpful, that they could give full vent to their emotions. They could weep, and they could mourn, and they could wail without feeling awkward or standing out in the crowd. That's what's going on here, and Mark calls it a commotion. It's a loud noise, an uproar. Jesus questions the behavior in verse 39. Why are you doing this? And they laugh at him. Well, of course they laugh at him, right? I mean, I mean, we've read the story. Try not, to, try not to know the end of the story, but to imagine if you're there. Of course they laugh at him. The healer, the healer has showed up and he's too late. It's, it's already the funeral time. These folks know a dead body when they see one. There's no time for healing now. Why have you brought Jesus? He could have just stayed wherever he was at. So of course they laugh. And then Jesus says that she's just sleeping. Don't misunderstand Jesus here. He's not, he's not minimizing death. Jesus is not saying that she's just kind of in a coma or something. She's really dead. He says the same thing about Lazarus. Remember Lazarus' story. Lazarus had been buried for four days. Jesus says he's just sleeping. See, Jesus is not saying that they're not really dead. No, she was really dead. Lazarus was really dead. It's just that they would not stay dead. It's just that on this day, they were as if they were sleeping because Jesus is about to awaken them. That's what he's talking about. And then in verse 40, it says that he put them all outside. I love that. I think we read through text sometimes and, and, and we miss little things like this. But with some degree of force, Jesus kicks them out of the house. <laughs> the mockers, those that are laughing and making fun of Jesus, he gives them the boot. I mean, this is, this is incredible. I love it when Jesus put, puts mockers in their place. And there will always be mockers too, folks. I, I hope you realize that. If they mock Jesus, they'll mock us. And Jesus, the inner three disciples, Peter, James, and John, and then the parents of the, the young girl enter the room where the girl's lifeless and dead body is still laying. And then you read in verse 41. And taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumai, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And immediately they were overcome with a sight amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know of this. And he told them to give her something to eat. Now, remember, church family, Peter, Apostle Peter, is the one that's eyewitness to this. He's one of the inner three that was able to see this, that Jesus said, Peter, James, John, come with me. So Peter's able to see this miracle happen. Peter's also Mark's eyewitness. He's the informant that Mark is interviewing as he's writing his gospel account, as best we can tell. And so as Peter is being interviewed by Mark, and Mark is writing the gospel that we're reading today, Imagine this, Peter's uh, experience there, this, this occasion, this event was so beautiful. 
That years later, Peter is telling Mark about it, and he can still hear Jesus' voice ringing in his ears. So much, though, that he recalls the accent, the, the Aramaic phrase that Jesus used when he leaned over the little girl's body, sat down by her, and lifted her up by the hand. Can you imagine how that must have uh, had an impression on Peter that years later he would still remember the words, the exact words that Christ uttered on that day? He could still recall the accent and the Aramaic phrase that he used as he sat down and took her by the hand. Which, by the way, taking her by the hand, someone who's defiled by death, would have been something that would have made someone unclean, right? The same way in which the woman who was unclean by her illness of blood would have made someone unclean. So this is an example here for us as kind of a side note where Jesus takes Old Testament law and turns it on its head, right? Old Testament law says, hey, she's dead. Don't touch her. It'll make you unclean. Old Testament law says, hey, that issue, that woman has an issue of blood, female issue of blood. Don't touch her. It'll make you unclean. And Jesus touches both of them, and instead of making him unclean, he turns around and cleanses the one, the carrier of the uncleanness. That's how Jesus transforms. That's how he came to fulfill the law. Now, the law doesn't make him unclean. He makes those that were unclean by the law whole and clean again. And then Mark recounts this phrase to us, Talitha Kumai. I think it's important for us. This is, there's incredible truth here that I think you miss if you just read through it quickly. The phrase that he uses there when we consider his actions throughout the day, what Jesus has already said to this point and what he's done to this point, the entirety of his day, these two words come together and have incredible meaning. Remember what Jesus has just said. What did he say to those that were mourning and mocking and making fun? She's just sleeping. She's just sleeping. And then he turns and he sits down by her and he says these two words and he takes her, takes her by the hand and says, Talitha. That phrase is translated for us. It has it in your text. You read it when you read the, the gospel account. Little girl, that's what it translates. But it, it doesn't really get across the sense of how he's saying it. See, that, that word's an Aramaic word. It's, it's a pet name. It's a term of endearment. It's a term that a, a mother would use for her small child. And so to convey the emphasis, to, to, to I think help us maybe to see what he's saying when he says this, it might be better translated like honey, sweetie. And the second word he says is kumai or kum in the, in the Aramaic, which means arise. And I think we hear it and we know the end of the story. So we think arise as in be resurrected, like from the dead, wake up from the dead. But that's not what the word means in its original usage. It was, it was a simple command that just means get up. And so in these two words, Jesus is simply doing for her what her parents might have done on a sunny morning. What her parents might have done on any average weekday morning as they get her up for school. Or whatever the day had in store, honey, it's time to get up. Sweetie, need to wake up now. <laughs> and she does. That's what's, that's what's incredible. She does. She does just that. As, as you hear the words of Jesus in the text in the Aramaic, Talitha Kumai, the words of Jesus' uh, mouth fall on this girl's cold and dull ears. And you can just picture her eyes flutter and open wide. As just moments before, she's dead. No beating in her heart, no breath in her lungs. And Jesus just says, honey, get up. It's time to get up. And she away. Jesus facing our, facing man's most cold-hearted and inescapable enemy, death itself. He has such power and authority that he takes this girl by the hand and lifts her right out of death. Honey, get up. I have your hand. Death itself is nothing but sleep when I have your hand. Friends, 
as we wrap up, see the spiritual truth here that Mark is identifying for us. Just like this woman with her uncleanness, her her disease is a picture of all of us before Christ. This is a picture of what Christ has done for every one of us that are his children. Spiritually, the Bible would tell us that we were dead in our trespasses and sin. We are dead before God because of sin. And he takes us by the hand and he leads us through death, through the darkest night. By his death on the cross and by faith in his finished work on the cross, because of Christ, we don't have to fear our most uh, inescapable and cold enemy anymore. This girl in the text, she's, she's not resurrected to eternal life. You see, this girl in the text, she's resuscitated. She's brought back to life, but she will go back to normal earthly life and she will die again one day. She will taste death again, finally, eternally. But for those of us that have been raised in Christ, for those of us that have experienced new life in Christ, we're not just resuscitated to resume normal earthly life. We will be resurrected to new, eternal, and heavenly life, never to taste or fear death again. Friends, that's the hope we have in Christ. That as we are in him, we have been resurrected to new life. What enables him to do this? 2 Corinthians 13, verse 4, says that for he was crucified in weakness. The eternal son of God who created all things was crucified like a mere human in weakness, but lives by the power of God. He didn't stay dead. He raised from the dead. So the verse continues, for we are also weak in him, but in dealing with you, we will live with him by the power of God. Friends, what the text is saying is as Christ has been raised, so we that are in him will experience resurrection. Christ became weak so that we could become strong. And there is nothing, if you think about the, the, a child in the dark or a child alone in a crowd of people, there is nothing more frightening For a little child than to lose the hand of a parent in the crowd or in the dark. And that's exactly what we see happened to Christ on the cross. That in that moment he lost his father's hand. That he went to the tomb so that we could be raised out of it. That he lost hold of the father's hand so that we could know that once we're in his hand, nothing can snatch us from it. That he has us eternally. So what is the Christ like? What is Jesus like who gives this kind of life? Yes, he has all authority. As we've seen over the last three weeks, he has authority to speak and nature obeys. He has authority to speak and demons obey. He has authority to heal disease by the simple touch of his clothes. He has authority to to, to raise the dead and make them alive again, physically and spiritually. He has all power, but friends, he is also loving, kind, and full of mercy. He wants us to know that he loves us. And so he gently invites us to respond to him by faith. Will you do that today? Will you call upon this one who has all authority over nature, over demons, over disease, and even death? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in texts like these, we see that you have all authority. And Father, we praise you that though we were dead in sin, we didn't have to stay there. That as we celebrate this Christmas season, you did come to this earth in the form of a baby. You were wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger. But out of love, you lived a perfect life and you died on the cross. And you conquered death by raising again so that we can have life. So that those who were weak in their sins can be made strong and alive in Christ. 
So help us to respond today to the text, to worship you, not just with the singing of our, our mouths and lips, but with the, the praise and worship of our hearts. Help us to repent of sin and to cling to Christ. Spirit, would you transform us today by the word, the power of the word, to look more like Jesus. It's in Jesus' name we pray.